Uh, Acts 23. Uh, I'll just go ahead and begin reading. Uh, we'll, go, we'll start in verse 23. <clears throat> and it says, Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused by the, about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And it was, when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered a letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you sanctify us this morning. Regenerate hearts that, that may not know you. Father, I pray that we seek to, to die to self as we look to you the only way Father, I pray this morning that, that you draw our eyes upon you in your written word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, I'll work a little bit backwards here in this passage to, to start and kind of just give a little bit of a uh, quick rundown on, on what's going on uh, history-wise here and in, in geographically as well. So uh, we're going to mainly take a look at this letter here that Felix, <coughs> that uh, Claudius wrote to Felix. Um, but we'll kind of start in verse 31 to 35, and then we'll, we'll backtrack and take a look at this letter. So uh, just to kind of give us a, an idea, I don't know if I'm doing this wrong. It's not on. Okay. All right. So here's this trip that they're about to take from Jerusalem to Caesarea, uh, tw- 38 miles to Antipatris. Antipatris was... That town named, uh, uh, Herod the Great named it after his father, Antipater. Um, and so they're going by night, the ninth hour. So the cover of darkness in order to uh, make it easier for them to, to, to take Paul by night. Uh, and remember this assassination crew, this 40 plus men are, are waiting in ambush. So they're heading this 38 mile journey to Antipatris. They get there. Um, we see here, so the soldiers, verse 31, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, and then the next day they returned to the barracks. So um, all the soldiers returned to the barracks except for these 70 horsemen, uh, and then Paul himself on horseback would go then to Caesarea. Uh, and they would deliver the letter here to the governor, and so that second leg of the journey, that 26-mile journey. So this just kind of gives you a visual here. I don't know if you've ever looked at Caesarea. Uh, this is modern-day Caesarea, and so right there is where they would have taken him to Herod's palace uh, at this time known as Herod's Praetorium. Um, it was a pretty fancy place. You can see a little dark spot in the middle. That was actually a swimming pool that was inside his Praetorium. There it is right there. So um, that is where they would have been housed. That's where the Governor Felix, this would have been kind of what it would look like uh, that at, th- at this time um, with Herod's palace, his praetorium there, and that would again where uh, Felix would have been housed and where they would have housed uh, the Apostle Paul during this trial. Um, 
And again, that's kind of a huge visual look of the entirety of the, the port there in Caesarea. And again, the palace there and um, the different things there with the port and the arenas where they would have the different uh, horse races and things like that. So, uh, so that just gives you kind of visual of where they're at, where they're heading. And, and so Paul, and he's in Roman custody and... It's more of, right now, a protective custody than a criminal custody. Uh, either way, God has him exactly where he wants him to be. So remember the, the promise that, that the Lord gave to Ananias, and Ananias gave to the apostle Paul in Damascus that, that you're going to be that vessel to uh, bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to rulers, and to kings. And this is where... Uh, he's going to eventually be speaking here to Felix and also King Agrippa. So this is all part of God's sovereign plan here. And I think sometimes, sometimes we don't like our trials. Uh, sometimes we don't like our, our prison season, for lack of better words. But this is exactly where God has ordained the Apostle Paul. And in our trials, our tribulations, this is exactly where the Lord has ordained us to be at for, for our sanctification, but mainly for his good, for his glory, and not of our own. So again, it's for his glory, and is exactly where and why they, Paul is where he's at at this moment. So uh, verse 23, so we're going to jump back to verse 23 here. Uh, when he called two of the centurions and and ready those soldiers, 200. Um, there's a little debate here on how many of these soldiers there were. Um, if there was 200 soldiers plus 70 horsemen and then 200 spearmen, totaling 470. Or if the 200 soldiers were the same 200 spearmen. Either way, there was 270 or 470. There was a lot. Right? Heavily outweighed the 40-plus assassination crew that was waiting in ambush. Um, what we get from this here, um, also they put Paul on horseback here as well. What we get here from this is that, that the Romans, at least for this moment right here, have dismissed Paul from any criminal acts against their law or against their, their legal legislation or, or perspectives. Um, and this may be one of the main values here of this passage. And we see this as well earlier. Remember in Corinth when, when the Jews brought Paul before Gallio. Gallio's like, hey, there's, there's, I have nothing against this man. And, and actually it allowed Paul to, to preach in, in Corinth under the protection of the Roman government. We've seen it from the town clerk in Ephesus. Remember the riot? They, they, they drew, all, uh, drew them into the amphitheater and, and, and they were causing this, this riot and, and, and most were just going with the crowd and not even sure what was happening. Remember the, the, the clerk in Ephesus, he came in, he's like, we're about to get charged for a riot. These, these, these men did nothing wrong. And that's the same case we see here. The commanders and, and others we see that, that Paul is, is no threat. There's no threat at this point. He's not breaking any laws. So um, that's where we're at right here, and, and it'll soon change under the, uh, the, the rule and the direction of Emperor Nero. Um, but civil government. So we see here this civil government in Rome, and we're not, we're definitely not to, to always look towards our government for protection because our, our ultimate protection is only found in the Lord. But here, with that said, God, he, he's the one who establishes civil government and charges them to protect their citizens. It's a charge by the civil government that the Lord puts in place. It doesn't always happen. You know, scripture has a, a lot to say about righteous government and has a lot to say about corrupt and evil government as well. But one of the main functions in a good government is to protect its citizens. So we see this here. Uh, we, we, we glean from this. We, we see that, that that's what's going on here to some extent in verse 
23 and 24 here. They're highly protecting the Apostle Paul at this point against six times as many, six or 12 times as many people as the uh, assassination party. Again, it just depends on how you translate that, whether it's 270 or 470. Again, it's, it's enough. So I think from this, we said there are times and situations where government is to meet force with a greater force in order to protect the innocent. Sometimes that's not where the government's mind is. It's on other motives. But here it seems they're doing just that. They, they, they bring out essentially the big guns, the cavalry here. This has been the cavalry of the day, the, the armored tanks of the day, the spearsmen, the, the horsemen. They're all coming out to protect the Apostle Paul in this journey to Antipatris and then forward on to Caesarea. This here entire situation from when Paul arrived in Jerusalem here two chapters back to where we are now is it's just as the Apostle John tells us in, in the first chapter of his letter, verse 11 says, Christ came to his own and they received him not. There's the thing, they, they do not receive his apostle either. So it's the very Christ who lives in Paul. Remember, they're not trying to kill Paul. They're trying to kill Christ who lives in the apostle Paul. They're trying to snuff it out. It cannot be done. So the irony is that but Paul, he's proclaiming to them the Messiah, the Messiah that they eagerly waited for. He's proclaiming to him their Messiah. And yet the response is, is just kill him. Do away with this fellow from the earth. He does not deserve to live. That's their response. It's the Roman government, through God's common grace, through God's providence, Standing up and protecting the Apostle Paul. Standing up and protecting their citizen. So we see here, Lysias, or Lysias, however you want to pronounce it, will not affect your salvation. So Lysias is still, he's somewhat confused here. Still somewhat confused as to, to what's going on, on, on in this situation, remember he had several attempts to figure out what's happening, what's going on in, in, in getting the answers as to why these Jews have came against this, this man and wanted him so badly to die. So for Lysias, the, the case has become greater and beyond him. So essentially it, it's moved beyond his pay grade, so to speak. So he sends... The Apostle Paul here to the Roman governor Felix with this letter of explanation, which that was proper. That was actually Roman law. If a subordinate officer was sending a, a prisoner or somebody for questioning to a higher officer, it was, it was law. They had to accompany that person with a letter of the details of what previously had happened. So, so that was proper here that he, he wrote this letter. So we see this Governor Felix. We're going to kind of, I'll, I'll briefly talk about him so we can get an idea of who this man was. Uh, he's a supreme ruler of all civil affairs of the, of the Jews in the Judea region. Uh, again, he's governor of, of the Roman province of Judea. He had like a seven-year stint from AD 52 to 59. Um, Felix was born a slave. He was born a slave, and later he was freed by Antonia, who was the mother of Emperor Tiberius. Claudius, his brother, also a freed slave. We don't know much about, we don't hardly know anything about his brother uh, other than his brother, his name's Paulus, and he somehow became good friends with Emperor Tiberius Claudius and then later on with the Emperor Nero. So by assumption, Paulus helped Felix get this position here as governor of Judea. Uh, the Roman historian, Tacitus, he, he, he wrote on Felix. He summarized his career. He said this. He said, he ruled as a tyrant 
plunging into all manner of cruelty and lust. So that, that was him. That was, that's a, a, a glean into the, the life of Felix. He ruled as a governor with ruthlessness. He had uh, ulterior motives. He had no problem executing anyone who came against him. Even sometimes he, he was known to brutally slaughter the Jews anytime there was any kind of minutia of an uprising. Just go out and, and, and slaughter them. Felix was an opportunist without a conscience. His ambitions were, were to gain power, to accumulate more wealth. For example, Felix befriended and used the high priest Jonathan to gain favor with the Jews, to help him get this, establish this appointment as governor. And then afterwards, he hired an assassination crew himself to murder the high priest Jonathan. So his loyalty didn't extend very far whatsoever. He, he had hired, he'd hired these assassination crews, these ruffians. We don't know if this is exactly what happened with Jonathan, but we know by historians who wrote uh, saying that, that he would hire ruffians to do his duty, and then he would charge and convict those people to vindicate himself. So that just gives us an idea of, of who this man was and who this man that, that Paul was about to stand before in, in this appeal. He wasn't beyond going and taking bribes to, to sway legal decisions. We actually see that if you want to flip the next page. Um, in verse 20, or chapter 24, verse 26, we see this, again, kind of tells us who this man was. He's constantly summoning the Apostle Paul. Verse 26 says, At the same time he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him often. So you see Felix trying to, to milk and, and bribe money out of Paul the entire time he was in Caesarea. So this was this, this, was this man's character, and, and Paul being sent to this man here to, to hear his case. Um, starting in verse 25, it says, and he wrote a letter to this effect. So Luke records this letter from Lysias to Felix. Again, this is Roman law that Lysias write this letter. And verse 26 says this. It says, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. And properly addressed his superior. I just feel like us saying to his honorable judge, so and so. So it's a proper addressing of a superior. We see verse 30. Uh, this indicates here that this situation has reached well beyond the pay grade of Claudius. It says that. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once. So as soon as he heard this plot against the Apostle Paul, this assassination crew, then he's like, this has moved beyond me. Right? I'm going to take this, in, this, this hearing, this appeal, and, and, and take him to the governor, Felix, for this hearing. So, all right, so here's the embedded within this letter. There's two serious distortions within that gives us a very good picture of the depraved state of man, the depravity of, of, of the natural man. Verse 27, notice here what, what he says. He says, This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Notice what he's saying. He's like, I went down there to rescue him. Why? Because he was a Roman citizen. Remember the discord. That doesn't fall in line with the chronology. 
of what happened. He, he didn't find out he was a Roman citizen until they pulled him out of that mob. They brought him to the steps of the barracks of the Antonia Fortress. Apostle Paul asked if he can address the people, and he did. The mob stirred back up. He brought him into the barracks, bound him, strung him up, prepared him to be flogged. And at that point in time is when he found out when the Apostle Paul appealed to, to the centurion that was standing next to him, there's a right for you to do this to a Roman citizen because it was illegal. There's a bold-faced lie here by Claudius, the Tribune, distorting the facts in order to put essentially a feather in his own cap. Get that merit badge, that flare on his toga. He lied to Felix. He lied to Felix to protect his own honor, to protect his own reputation, possibly to protect his own neck. Completely omit having bound the Apostle Paul, ordered him to be flogged, in which was illegal to do so to a Roman citizen without a fair trial. I talked about this a few weeks back. Claudius is speaking in his mother tongue. Speaking in his mother tongue. Who is Claudius' father? It ain't Christ, it's Satan. The father of lies. That's his mother tongue. That's his natural instinct to lie. Because his master is the father of lies. So he admits his lack of, of, of he omits completely his lack of due diligence in, in this whole situation. Notice here, notice how great he is at blaming the Jews for, for their crime, for their sin, for their assassination plot to kill the Apostle Paul. He was, he's good at that. That was easy for him. It's easy to, for a man to look at himself in a mirror, profess his own goodness, look at other people, and see their faults. Sees the sins of the Jews and can easily point that out clears day. He tries to vindicate himself. Vindicate himself and distorts the facts to present himself in better light. Makes himself a hero. There's only one hero in this story. He and his pride tried to make himself out to be the hero, but it wasn't much of one. This is a warning here. This is a warning to, to us all. Selfish motives oftentimes tempt us to preserve our own self-righteousness before others. Notice that in the book of Acts, there's there's only two letters. The book book itself is, is, is a letter, but there's only two letters within, meaning the one in back in Acts 15, the letter from the Jerusalem Council. Right, and that letter is very clear see, as to why God preserved it in the, the book of Acts here. And that letter to, to go out to the, to the Gentiles. The, the, the council had come together and they, they came to the same conclusion that Gentiles, they don't have to go through Judaism to be saved. They are saved by grace through faith. So we understand that. We see that clear. But this one here, this letter is less apparent as to why God preserved it and, and the Holy Spirit convicted Luke to pen and document this letter. I believe one of the main reasons is to expose to us how naturally the natural man lies in order to save face. And it's, it's, it's a great example of the, the depravity of the human heart. Right? We, we can see this clearly in Felix. Right? We can see it clearly in Claudius. We can see it clearly in others. But it's a bit harder to see it when we are the ones doing it. See, we all still have that 
principle of, of sin where we are tempted to, to promote our own self-righteousness or, or desire to, to look good in the eyes of others. Even to try to look good in our own eyes. Now, sometimes, we've, sometimes we can fall into that trap of, of molding for ourselves from our own minds, from our own thoughts, from our own heart, from our own sinful nature, the image of ourselves on who we think we should look like who we think we ought to be. And that's scary sometimes because that image sometimes looks nothing like Christ. His image is the only one we are to seek to mirror. The Pharisees, they, they excelled. They excelled in this self righteous imagery that, that, that we too are, are subjected to. Therefore, we should be on constant, be on guard constantly, to examine ourselves constantly. See, regeneration of the heart, it, it instantly prunes a lot of these self-righteous thoughts, these, these prideful intentions, these, these arrogant motives. But the sin nature is still present still present and, and, and can essentially bore its nasty teeth, its nasty fangs from time to time. Where we are tempted to, to blame others and not ourselves, just as the commander here did with the Jews. He saw their faults, but not his own. Distorting the facts, so... so Essentially, he can come out, and this is something that we can fall to. They're distorting the facts that we can come out essentially smelling like roses on the other end, and the other person smells like warm garbage. Sometimes this happens in our homes, our marriages, difference of opinions. It's easy to see the other person's faults so clearly. Just don't see our faults. You see this in family and parenting. Parenting, especially, it's hard. Do what I tell you, don't do what I do. You need to be careful with that. Something that you can fall to, you can hear that. Oh, don't listen. Keep your, your, your kids ears muffled in certain situations where oh, they don't need to, to listen to this music. They don't need to watch this TV show because they're not ready. They got little ears. It's like, what? I hear that all the time, too. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to, to, to say that thing, to, to cuss in front of that child. It's like, you know it's wrong. You know it's wrong, whether it's for a child or for you. Cut it out. If it's wrong for a child, it's wrong for an adult. You see it at work? It's a common place. Promote ourselves and, and, and criticize the work of others in order to elevate ourselves. You see it in other relationships where we just preen the feathers of our own self-righteousness and, 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 and polish the crown of our, our self-proclaimed innocence. This is, this is the sin nature that we see in the commander, but we must beware. This sin nature is in us as well. Still there until full sanctification. And that won't happen until the other side of eternity. A great example of that with Ananias and Sapphira back in Acts 5. If you can remember that eons ago when we were in Acts 5 and Ananias and Sapphira they, they could have done anything they wanted with that land they didn't even have to sell it but they made a promise to the Holy Spirit I'm going to sell it and I'm going to bring the money to the apostles to the, to the entire body 
but they didn't do that. They kept some for themselves. They could have said, I'm going to sell this land and, and give half. Could have done whatever they wanted with it. But they lied to the Holy Spirit. Their sinful nature came out at that time. Jeremiah in chapter 17, verse 9, he reminds us of this. He says the heart is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is why this is why the Apostle Paul is so adamant about putting on the entire armor of God constantly. Right? Be in the word, holding fast to it. Be in prayer. Be in fasting. When's the last time you fast? Praying that our, our hunger for food is nowhere even close to our hunger for, for the word, for holiness. To do this without ceasing, pray without ceasing. Listen, one a person who backslides, a person who backslides is they don't backslide at the time of the sin. No, they backslid months ago, months ago in their prayer life, in their in their devotion to the Word. That's when they backslide. A prime example of this, if you want to turn with me, I'll read it out loud. If, if, if not, Acts 18, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 18. Many of us know this story of, of, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is a great example of self-righteousness, the self-righteousness of the heart. Luke 18, this parable that the Lord speaks in, I'll start in verse 10, and follow along, it says, in 18, verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing off, far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee harped on the sins of others. He essentially pedestaled himself, right, not pulling the, the log from his own eye, right, which completely blinded him from his self-righteousness, the self-righteousness that had spewed from his heart. He was blinded to it. And we need to be careful. This is a temptation for us. Go ahead and turn, speaking of log in the eye, go ahead and turn to Matthew 7 really quick. Here's the Jesus here in this, he, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to his disciples. Right? So here Jesus had to deal with this same situation on a gut check level with his own disciples. <clears throat> Look, he says, judge not that you not be judged. This isn't a categorical prohibition of judgment. We know that from Matthew 18 that, that there is righteous judgment in, in church discipline and things like that. But So here it says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What, what's Christ dealing with here? What is he dealing with? He, he's dealing with the same heart attitude as the commander in distorting the facts and covering his own discrepancies. The point is this. Jesus is saying, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like the rest of the world. Be separate. Separate from the world. Thing. Why did he have to? Why did he have to remind his, his disciples of this? Because of their sin nature. They can tempt them to promote themselves in, in so becoming hypocrites like the Pharisee. So in this is, is one thing that this letter has for us and to see clear how an unbeliever can distort details and, and cover the truth to promote himself to make it look as though he is the hero so in that I think that we need to learn from an unbeliever because the seed of pride and self-righteousness can grow within us if we're not careful so the Lord the Lord calls us to humility. So those who humble themselves will be exalted. <clears throat> he calls us to humility. True godliness recognizes, sees our own sin, our own faults, and it doesn't deny it. It doesn't deny our own faults. John says in his first letter that if you say you have no sin, then you, you lie and you do not even know the truth. Those who are his, they, they, they take these things, these sins that are revealed to them, the convictions from the Holy Spirit, they repent and they take them to the, the, the cross of Christ. Repent, confess them if need be. So in this, we should always, always start by examining our own heart. Examining our own heart and, and kind of expect to find a beam there and asking the Lord to, to show it to us. Lord, show me my faults. Show me the sins that I do that I don't even realize. We need to be like that of the tax collector off in the corner, not seeing himself even worthy to, to, to look towards heaven. Over there beating his chest. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the humble heart we need to have. The heart that is focused not on the things of the world, but on Christ and Christ alone. You may say, how do I do that? How do I do that? We need men and women moved by the Holy Spirit. Moved by the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting word in, in, in the scripture, that word moved. The Greek word is, is, is pharaoh. We have several examples Here's one specifically, 2 Peter 1, 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved, that's our word, Pharaoh, moved by the Holy Spirit. Acts 27 this, is, this gives us a good indication of, of what this word means. This word moved, Pharaoh. Acts 27, this is that situation we're in. Look at verse 15. This is 
a situation happening where the storm's coming in. They're right off the, the, the Isle of Crete, and the shipwrecked here is about to, to happen where Paul then is there stranded on Malta. Um, but prior to, look, it says, and I'm not trying to over-spiritualize this, this verse or anything either, but so just make note of that, that, that when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, could not face the wind, so that's the same as the, the wind of God. When someone is, is, is hit head-on with the wind of God, cannot face it. As the Lord says in John 3, that the wind blows where it blows, and so it is with the Holy Spirit. Could not face the wind. And it says, we gave way to it, and we're driven along. That's our word, driven, Pharaoh. We're moved along. So just like this instance here with the, with the, the natural wind, it could not come against it. They were drug along, moved along, subject to the force of the wind. So it is with the Holy Spirit in, in, in Second Peter, I just read. Men moved by the Holy Spirit, moved by the Holy Spirit. Listen, the Holy Spirit is the same today as he was yesterday, as he was 2,000 years ago, as he was since the foundation of the world, as he was since eternity's past. He will be the same in eternity's future. We cannot discredit the moving of the Holy Spirit upon somebody's life. The Holy Spirit comes upon somebody, takes their heart of stone and makes them a heart of flesh. They are changed. They're changed. If you want to go, I'm going to read from very quickly here. Closing in Acts or in Luke 24 to kind of bring this into perspective. Acts 24, verse. We'll start in 45. When he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Who opens the mind to understand the scriptures? For, for us today, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit. Right? The, Spirit of the, the same Spirit in, in, that we read the prophecy about in Isaiah 11, the Spirit that, that, that descended upon Christ, that, that gave the Spirit of understanding of counsel, of might, of wisdom and knowledge, fear of the Lord. The Holy Spirit descending upon Christ in the Gospels at the, the start of his earthly ministry. I should say start of his earthly ministry in a more fuller way, more full way. It's the same Holy Spirit that we receive. And so here, Christ being right there with them, speaking to them, gave them minds to understand. He said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be what? Should be proclaimed. Proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise. Who is the promise? The Holy Spirit. The promise of the Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. They knew the facts. They were given it. They knew A plus B equals C, but they needed the power of the Holy Spirit. And then that brings us to the, the entire summation of, of, of the book of Acts. 
that we read right from the beginning, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to all of Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And we see in the very next chapter, in chapter 2, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happened? They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they turned Jerusalem completely upside down. Completely upside down. I should bring to our minds, like, this is the same Holy Spirit. Same Holy Spirit today. Do not discredit the Holy Spirit. A person needs way more than an emotional stirring. They need the Holy Spirit. They need the Holy Spirit. They need the power from on high. Totally transformed without one desire to be known, without one desire to to have increase in anything except that of the increase of the kingdom. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Moved, Pharaoh, moved by the Holy Spirit. 120, 120 in that upper room told to go and wait. 40 days. 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, they were told to wait. Wait for the promise and the power from on high. When the Holy Spirit, this is, when the Holy Spirit descended upon Mary, what happened? She gave birth. When the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples, they gave birth to a revival. I mean, they they turned the world completely upside down. It didn't have any financial backing. It didn't have any seminary degrees. Full of faith. Full of the Holy Spirit. No room for anything else. No room for pride, no room for greed, no room for promotion, no room for worldly ambitions, no desire to be known at all. The only one that we should desire to be known by is Christ himself. But does he know you? or desire to be known by, by the spiritual evils and darknesses of the world. Or the sons of Sceva try to cast out the demons. I, I know Christ, I know, I know Paul, but, but who are you? You should be known by the, the, the demons, known by the spiritual darkness. If not, what are, what are we doing? Can your conscience speak to this? Here's a quote. I've now concentrated all my prayers into one. And that one prayer is this, that I might die to self and live wholly to him, says Spurgeon. Can you say the exact same this morning? Can you do so with a clear conscience? The Word of God says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, completely new. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. The old has passed away, dead to self, living for Christ. Why? Because Christ lives in me. Holy Spirit who enters and purges out. Listen, that's one thing is going to have to happen. Worldly things are going to be purged. They need to be purged. They can only be purged by the Holy Spirit. That's what he means by dying to self. Find any gain, any self-promotion, righteousness, pride. If this doesn't describe you, just if you're like, I, I, 
don't know if this is me. Cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord like the tax collector. Go home and, 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 and go off in the corner by yourself. Pray to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says he is rich in mercy. He will not turn away anyone who, who earnestly and truly seeks after him. That's a promise. Stand firm on that promise of the power that's on high. The Holy Spirit said he gives to all, all those who believe. And so when we're in these trials, these difficult times, or even in good times, in, in, in times of, of prosperity, not in the sense of monetary or, or abundancy of things, but just when times just feel good. Lean to the power that's from on high. The power that gives you the words and the time to speak them. The power to step out of your comfort zone. Preach the gospel to a dying world. But don't do so with the intentions to seek joy and peace and comfort. Those things come with the Holy Spirit. But our eyes should only be set to God. God alone. Not desiring joy and peace and all those things. But desiring God. And that is it. Desiring after Christ who died a sinner's death upon the cross for the sins of all those who will believe died, buried, and rose again. That's where our eyes should gaze. That's where the tax collector is, feels not even worthy to look upon. Seek after him. Let's pray. Father, Today I pray for men and women full of the Holy Spirit. Men who have no vision whatsoever but of the vision of God. The vision of you. The vision for holiness. Father, please give us the passion. The passion for the lost. Your heart for the lost. Father, pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.